Pop Health Week is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Health Innovation Media brings your brand narrative alive via original or value-added digitally curated content for omni-channel distribution and engagement. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. And welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media and the producer and co-host of Pop Health Week. Joining me in the virtual studio is my partner, colleague, and lead co-host of Pop Health Week, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC. On today's episode of Pop Health Week, our guest is Leandro Mena, MD, MPH, a clinician researcher and public health advocate with expertise in the prevention and clinical management of sexually transmitted diseases and the human immunodeficiency virus and STD HIV prevention research. We explore the many layers of public health within the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Among the many insights he offers, Dr. Mena reminds us that public health encompasses more than the lessons of the recent pandemic, emphasizing the continued prevalence of STD HIV threats, progress, and prospects. Dr. Mena is the founding chair of the Department of Population Health Science at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, John D. Bauer School of Population Health, and professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases. He also directs the Center for HIV-AIDS Research, Education, and Policy at the Merely Evers Williams Institute for the Elimination of Health Disparities and serves as the STD Medical Director for the state of Mississippi. And with that introduction, Fred, over to you. Help us connect with Dr. Mena's innovative work. Thanks so much, Greg and Leandro. Welcome to Pop Health Week. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Fred, for having me here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to get you on the show and finally have a chance to talk to you some more. So why don't you start by giving our audience a little bit of your background? Oh, sure. You know, um, I'm an infectious disease specialist by training. Um, I train in infectious diseases in New Orleans. And before that, um, I did residency in internal medicine. Uh, for the past 20 years, I've been, almost 20 years, I've been in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I came originally to be a director of the local STD clinic with the health department. So my work here has been largely um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the field of uh, sexual health, STDs, HIV prevention. And, uh, and for, for the past 10 years, perhaps, you know, um, it has really been involved in, in thinking through, you know, how we deliver care to people. And um, and developing, you know, um, and thinking about healthcare delivery models that are responsive and are informed, you know, by past experiences and by preference of the patients that we see. And you're obviously in Mississippi, an area in which health issues and health disparities tend to be rather large. Obviously, HIV is an as a disease that impacts disproportionately those in the minority communities. I know you've done a lot of focus work in that. How is that coming along now? Uh, Fred, we have done tremendous progress. I mean, it's almost uh, difficult to believe that this June, we celebrated 40 years of that MMW report by CDC that basically, you know, a report on the first, you know, cases of uh, AIDS in the United States. And on uh, those 40 years, you know, uh, we have been able to um, decrease the number of uh, HIV infections, at least domestically. Uh, substantially from uh, from uh, uh, where it was in the peak of the early 90s, right? 
about 180,000 new infections per year to where we are now to less than 38,000. I think that um, in the past, since 2004, 2018, we have had about 8% decrease. Uh, and, uh, and we have, you know, a, a, we have a new um, strategy, uh, the ending the HIV epidemic strategy. Uh, that aims to reduce by 75% the number of new HIV infections in five years and by 90% the number of new HIV infections in 10 years. Wow. And so, you know, I think back to the early days, obviously this was a, a disease originally of gay white men, and then it expanded out. And now what, where is that in terms of infections between various communities, men, women, different races, et cetera? So, so HIV, you know, at least in the United States, uh, still, you know, is a disease that disproportionately affect, you know, certain populations, certain geography. In terms of geography, you know, the South that only has 38% of the population has about 50, a little bit over 50% of all, you know, HIV cases. When it comes to race, you know, African Americans are disproportionately affected by HIV, um, and 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 another, you know, and, and Latinos, you know. Then when it comes to risk, uh, um, men who with men are represent only 2% of the US population and uh, represent almost 70% of all new HIV infections. So this, uh, I mean, I cannot imagine any other health disparity, right? You know, biggest than the one that exists, you know, of HIV as it affects, you know, men who has with men. And obviously you've talked about, we've made great progress in reducing that number of infected every year, but we're still, shooting to reduce it even more. And I know there are newer treatments that come out, have come out. Can you talk about PrEP, what that is and how that is used? Oh, absolutely. You know, if for, you know, since 2002, almost, you know, again, 10 years ago, the FDA um, approved, you know, um, a, a, a drug, you know, tenofovir combined with entricitabine. That was the first, you know, PrEP medication approved. Now there are two, you know, formulations available. Tenofovir with a, Alafenamide or tenofovir desoproxil fumarate. There are two co formulations available um, that are at the end, you know, one pill that people can take once a day. And if you take one pill once a day, that really, you know, significantly reduces your risk of becoming HIV infected if exposed to over 99%. You know, the tenofovir desoproxil fumarate plus amtricitabine, which is co formulated in one single tablet, you know, can be taken by. Men who are with men, heterosexual individuals, people who are maybe at risk of HIV because they inject drugs and share needles or, or um, paraphernalia. And that, you know, pill can actually, you know, significantly reduce the risk of HIV infection. So, and I guess we probably should explain PrEP is... Right, PrEP is, you know, again, it's a strategy that it, consists it, of taking pre one... It's pre-exposure prophylaxis, right? Right, it's pre-exposure prophylaxis, correct. And it's a strategy that consists of taking, you know, medication, antiretrovirals, right, that are very often used for the treatment of HIV uh, by individuals who are not HIV infected, who people who don't have HIV, so they don't get HIV infected if exposed to HIV. So that's that's a really important clarification. And the way I help explain people the analogy, right, it's almost like birth control. Right, birth control is taking the oral oral birth control. It's a pill that women take, you know, every day. So if you know exposed, right, they can prevent you know unwanted pregnancy. In addition to prep, there is another strategy that uses antiretrovirals to prevent HIV, and it's called post-exposure prophylaxis. 
post after after exposure, mm -hmm. which I equate, you know, to how it works the morning after pill. You know, if you have an accident, if you think you may have an exposure or HIV, you have, you know, unprotected sex, you know, with someone who may be living with HIV, uh, then you can take, you can start within 72 hours, you know, a cocktail of HIV medication that you take for four weeks, and that will reduce, again, similarly, the risk of acquiring HIV. And how large a reduction is that? So with post-exposure prophylaxis, we don't have human data. And part of the okay. reason is because, you know, it would be unethical, right, to randomize people, you know, one oh, yeah. placebo, you know, so that we only know from uh, animal data that is very effective. And then from historical data that we have not seen anyone who has taken uh, post-exposure prophylaxis, you know, a, a properly and completed the four weeks who have become HIV infected. But there is another tremendous advance, you know, in HIV prevention. You know, people, not everyone knows that individuals who are living with a diagnosis of HIV, who take their medication every day, and as a result of taking the medication, their viral load, the amount of virus, you know, that is in their blood becomes undetectable, cannot, absolutely cannot pass HIV to someone else. I mean, I would argue that the most effective method that we have nowadays to really prevent HIV transmission is actually, you know, making sure that those individuals who are living with HIV are being treated, you know, for their infection are taking the medication every day. What happens that, what happened is that unfortunately, right, you know, in the United States, you know, not everyone who's living with HIV is aware that they are, their diagnosis, so we have to improve testing. Not everyone who is aware of the diagnosis, you know, has had the opportunity to see a provider or see a person who can prescribe medications to them on a regular basis. And even if those medications are prescribed, not everyone, you know, has the ability to take those medications every day. You know, there are many factors. I mean, sometimes education, sometimes other priorities in life, sometimes, you know, changes in insurance, uh, changes in job. Uh, there's so many factors that really, you know, mm -hmm. has the potential to interfere in people's ability to take medication every day. One thing that is exciting, I think, is that we have new ways to treat HIV coming down the pipe. You know, uh, the FDA approved this year the first injectable method to treat HIV. So we're talking about instead of people taking a daily pill, that sometimes good news, bad news may affect, you know, your ability to do that. Now, very soon we will have an injection. We have an injection that is already approved, that is available now, starting to be available, that people can have once a month. Um, that will replace the need to take daily, you know, wow. a, a oral medication. Yeah, you know, I think back 20 years ago when I was doing some work with the HIV disease management programs, and it's a classic population health issue. Mm -hmm. You have multiple ways to treat, to keep people from becoming infected, pre and post, and then you have all the issues associated with adherence and lifestyle and social terms of health. And really, you've got a fairly substantial practice in the state of Mississippi you know, which it's an area that struggles with a lot of these issues. How have you seen that going in that state? Uh, you know, Mississippi, uh, like the rest of the South, has unique challenges. I mean, uh, it's a long list. I mean, I think, you know, uh, you know, uh, racism and the impact, the legacy of racism, right, in communities, you know, the poverty, the lack of education, the, the fact that so many states in the South you know, did not expand Medicaid, and we have such a large proportion of uninsured individuals. The, right, the fact that, you know, public transportation, right, is so uh, 
ineffective, you know, in many, in many, the fact that public transportation is so ineffective in many uh, metropolitan areas, but also that it's actually, you know, lacking, you know, the lacking in many other in suburban areas. The fact that, you know, such a large proportion of individuals who are living with HIV in the South live in rural areas, right? So all that really, you know, contributes, you know, to the, to, to the, to our reality, you know, that taking care of HIV in the South, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, is a lot harder and it's a lot more expensive than taking care of HIV in, in a large metropolitan area. Um, states like, um, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, over 50% of all the individuals living with HIV live in rural areas. So then you have to imagine what is it, you know, to live in a rural area. It means that sometimes you may have a clinic nearby, but that clinic nearby, maybe the clinic where your family works, where your best friend or cousin works, you know what I mean? So it's not only about access, but it's about having access that people can use. So it's a tremendous challenge. Wow. And I know that the university itself there is one of the two HHS centers of excellence for telehealth. Have you implemented any telehealth with HIV or is that something you're thinking about for those rural communities? No, no, it, 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 certainly, you know, I think telehealth, you know, has been, again, telehealth is a tremendous tool, you know, and we felt that it should be a tremendous tool. Right? And, and, and before COVID, I think COVID accelerated, right? the implementation of telehealth. And we learned, you know, a lot of, uh, through COVID because um, when it comes to caring, you know, I think that one of the things that we have to understand is that there has been tremendous innovation, you know, with COVID, you know, and there has been tremendous innovation about how to deliver health services in a way that is easier. You have drive-through, you know, laboratories, you have drive-through vaccinations, you have, you know, a use of the telehealth, but all that, if we do not figure out a way, um, process by which we give people, a, we, we give people an equitable, you know, access, right? it has the potential to improve this part. So, I mean, let me give you an example. I mean, for example, states like Mississippi, there are so many rural areas who do not have broadband. You know, when I started doing telehealth about three years ago for pre-exposure prophylaxis, I mean, again, as a way to bridge um, a, the lack of access to culturally competent providers, you know, for gay, bisexual men in rural areas, a, one of the things that happened is that the most common place where people would connect with me from their phones, right, to do a telehealth visit was the parking of Walmart. So I say, so I start wondering, you know, is it because people is living home so they can have privacy? And I start asking people, and the reason why is because that's where people can get Wi-Fi, right? Wow. So if you want to have a video conference, a video conference of 30 minutes will use one gigabyte of data. I mean, so again, you have to have a data plan to order to, in order to have telehealth. So, so it becomes complicated. Second thing is that when you talk to, and I've done focus groups with many of my patients who are living with HIV to help us understand how these things work for them. You know, one of the things I learned is that a large proportion of our patients, especially during COVID, you know, do not have at home the privacy, you know, that they need in order to have these, you know, medical visits. You know, so in the past, they were able to go to a local, you know, library, you know, but because of COVID, many of these things were closed. So again, I think that telehealth is a tool. And one of the things I learned that patients really like, you know, be able to access telehealth when they need it. 
And when they didn't, it means that if you have to go to the doctor, but you have to take your kids, you know, to school or you have to go to work. Yes, a telehealth call, you know, may simplify things and it's easier. But when you have time to see your doctor, and that's, you know, and you want to see your doctor, you know, you, you know, that's what you want to do. You know, so I mean, again, I, I think that, again, telehealth should be part of the tools that we use to improve access and not like a one size fits all, you know, to simplify our own, you know, operations as providers right so in essence it's it's similar to the whole redlining issue in terms of ac access to the technology the broadband the bandwidth etc to be able to use these services so if we don't build that into the backside of this thing it's not going to help these populations that need it desperately and if you're just tuning in to pop health week our guest is dr leandro mena the founding chair of the department of population health science at university of mississippi medical center john d bauer school of population health and professor of medicine in the division of infectious diseases and the director of the center for hiv aids research education and policy absolutely yeah fascinating as you look at what's happened you've talked about the the progress what are what are some of the initiatives to try to drop that you know, 75%, five years, 90% or whatever in 10, what are some of the things that they're considering as ways to do that? You know, uh, someone said, you know, uh, our past is a prologue, you know, to the future. Uh, and I think that if you look at the rate uh, at which we have been able to decrease, you know, the number of HIV infections, right, in the past uh, 10 years or so, you know, that tells us that we have to do things that are innovative. We have to do things very different from what we have done if we're going to achieve the goal of decreasing HIV infection by 75% in five years. If I look at the last five years from 2014 to 2018, we only decreased HIV infection by 8%. So we have to go to 75. That means that we have to work maybe nine times harder, right? You know, so, so, so it requires a lot of innovation, a lot of thinking out of the box, a lot of really being able to do things in a way that we have never done before. So part of this, I mean, when you deal with a disease like HIV, that is, um, again, an important factor, you know, a stigma, you know, that a, a, a aggressive homophobia a, that affects individuals who are vulnerable, a, who are uninsured, who very often have a, lower socioeconomic status, you know, lower educational attainment, and you think about the healthcare system where we're trying to care for these individuals, then you have to question, right? That uh, if we have the right delivery models, I mean, to address the needs of this population, one of the things that we're doing that really was inspiring part what the group at University of Washington, Matt Golden and uh, Julie Dombrowski it did uh, with the Max Clinic in, in Washington, in Seattle, is that we have developed this low barrier access clinic. You know, the, what we say is that healthcare in the United States is like an upslope, right? And if you can climb that slope, then you will enjoy, you know, health and wellness. But that to climb that, you need to be equipped by a number of things. You need to have probably, you know, health insurance, right? You need to be able to afford, you know, co-pays. You need to be able to have a job probably that will give you paid medical leave so you can attend appointments. You need to figure out how to call, make appointments, you know, cancel appointments. You need to be able to set up, you know, a, call the pharmacy, request refills, you know. So all those things that seem to be intuitive, you know, if you have been doing that for some time, but are totally foreign if you are a man 
you know, who only goes to the doctor when something hurts, something burns, you know, on something breaks. So one of the things that we've been doing is that we're developing this low barrier access clinic that say, you know what, you know, let's, we combine high intensity case management. We say, we tell the clinics, you know, give us our patients, the patients that you have that in spite of you doing the best that you can are not doing well. I mean, and we sit down with those patients and we do an intake where we ask people what happened. We know what has happened until now, trying to, trying to understand people's past experiences. We then, you know, assess people's needs, you know, both clinical and social needs. And then we ask people, we try to understand what are people's expectations, how they would like this to work better. How can we do it better for you? Is it, I mean, you want another case manager? You want a case manager who calls you more often? Do you prefer to be called on the phone? Do you prefer to be text messages? Do you want those every day? Uh, do you need transportation? How do you prefer? I mean, is it, I mean, is a taxi is okay? We learn by when you give people choices and you ask, you learn that some people don't like, you know, strangers to come to their house. And it's because the moment that someone comes in the neighborhood that no one knows, everyone is looking. What we did is that we got rid of appointments. I mean, we tell people, listen, just show up whenever you can. It doesn't really matter. We also provide financial incentives to, uh, not to pay people, but to be able to compensate people to mitigate the social, for the social determinants of health with the assumption that if you don't have paid medical leave and you go to a place, you take time off from work, probably you're losing income, right? You know, so again, for many of our patients, coming, showing up for a medical appointment is expensive and they couldn't come, but they can, because they cannot afford health. So that's kind of the, the rationale beside, besides that. You know, I know people can't see this because it's a podcast, but I'm smiling ear to ear listening to you, Leandro, because, <laughs> because in essence, you're you're identifying all of those issues. People can't focus on their health because their life gets in the way. Right. And you try to find those life issues and figure out how do we solve this? How do we solve that in very unique and individual ways, which is just exciting to hear right. about. I think that's really the key. That's a population health approach to a, a, a disease state in a clinic to help people beyond just their health. But I think, you know, it's a refinement. I mean, I see that as really true, you know, patient-centered care, you know, that I call individualized, I mean, the, a healthcare delivery. You know, so we want to make sure we have a, a team that is absolutely amazing, you know, people who's very caring, empathetic, who really connects with patients. Again, to say, listen, we're doing this together. I mean, how can we do this better? How can we do this, you know, to work for you? Fantastic. It really is fantastic to hear this and the progress that's been made. And obviously, hopefully, we we as a country achieve those goals and exceed the ones you talk about of dropping it by 75% in five years and 90% in 10 years. I think the tools are there and obviously approaches like you have can do that. The other role you play at the university is you're the chair of the Department of Population Health, correct? Department of Population Health Science, yes. Health, population Health Science is correct, because there's this Population Health Sciences, I think there's Data and Analytics, and there's another one in yeah. there, too. Preventive so, Medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it, Preventive Medicine. I, and uh, I'm still learning all this stuff, you know, I've been there for a little while. So can you talk about the school and, and what the school does, the Bauer School of Population Health, your role and what the school does? Right. No, absolutely. You know, the, the John D. Bauer School of Population Health is actually the, the newest school in the University of Mississippi Medical Center campus, the newest professional school. And the school uh, was founded about four years ago now 
with an endowment of the Bauer Foundation to really, you know, address uh, the disparities, you know, and, and improve the health of all Mississippians consistent with the mission, mission of uh, the University of Mississippi Medical Center. So in, from its insert, the school has had three departments. One department is preventive medicine. The other department is the Department of Data Science. And the third department is the Department of Population and Science. You know, this um, population health show, and, and I'm sure your audience, you know, kind of understands I'm assumed that they understand what population health is. And I always tell people that population health science is the discipline, interdisciplinary, you know, right? Science that really focuses on the understanding of the mechanisms, you know, by which disparities exist, you know, and how, you know, equity can be achieved. So we are a very, you know, amazing diverse group of faculty, really diverse background that makes, you know, uh, the work that we do, uh, really a group of people who really think out of the box that really draws from different, you know, um, from different fields, you know, I have faculty whose background is in criminal justice and education, people on urban development, uh, politics and economics, uh, public health, um, uh, clinical outcomes, you know, physical exercise, uh, physical activity, uh, translational researches, say, um, epidemiology, so it's a really, you know, true you know, a, a, a yourself, you know, healthcare management. Um, so it's a really diverse group of individuals. I mean, clinicians, a, a, so, so very, very diverse. And uh, everyone thinking, you know, both in the upstream, you know, a, a factors that influence a, a health outcomes in populations. And people who want to get a master's or an executive master's or a PhD program can do that through the school? Absolutely, yeah. The school has three academic programs. One of them is that we have a master in population health. It's a two years, we call that traditional program. It's a two years program, but it's an online asynchronous program that is very suitable for people to do even when they have you know, their job. So we have um, then a traditional PhD program, which is a four year minimum program. Um, there is an in-person program. The population health program, health science, you know, PhD, is a program that really focuses on developing population health scientists. We want to make sure that I tell students, potential students, that that I see the program as a transformation process, right? Where the process is a student process, where they come in and they exit the program as a population health scientist. Um, we take uh, no more than four students per year because we want to make sure that we have the faculty and we have the, the capacity to really mentor in, 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 in nurturing, you know, each one of those students into the process of becoming a population scientist. And then we have a stellar program of population health management that you know very well, as you were in one of the founder uh, faculties in our program that really, uh, the focus on, on is an executive program, program in, in science, in master in science and population health management that really focus on making sure that clinicians and other healthcare professionals have a clear understanding of the, our healthcare system, the challenges, as we envision the opportunity to be part of the uh, reinvention of our healthcare system. I think that you know the United States has a, a impending, you know, a, a crisis in addressing healthcare as the proportion of our national GDP, you know, uh, that is dedicated to health continues to increase every year, at some point, we're going to have to address it. We can no longer be the country that spends the most in healthcare, yet we don't have health outcomes that really correlate, right, with the kind of expenditure and investment that we make.
Well, it's fantastic. It's been great having you on the show, Leandro. Thanks so much for the discussion on HIV AIDS and uh, the progress that's been made there and also introducing the, the Bauer School of Population Health. It's a pleasure working for you, actually, and my role there. And I really appreciate you coming on Pop Health Week. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. And uh, thank you for inviting me to the program. Back to you, Greg. And thank you, Fred. That is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank Dr. Leandro Mena, the founding chair of the Department of Population Health Science at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, John D. Bauer School of Population Health, and professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases, for his time and generous insights today. For more information on Dr. Mena's work, go to www.umc.edu forward slash SOPH or follow the school's work on Twitter via at Bauer, SOPH, and UMMC News, respectively. And finally, if you're enjoying our work here at Pop Health Week, please consider liking and subscribing to our channel on the podcast platform of your choice and do follow us on Twitter via at Pop Health Week. Bye now. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.